0: Chapter Three, Part Two of A Soldier of the Legion by George Mannington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Part Two. From Hutuay, for this was the name given by the natives to the citadel. Tanam administered the whole of the province in the name of the exiled emperor. The villages paid taxes into his treasury and furnished rice and other requisites for his army which at this time consisted of about two thousand five hundred men one thousand five hundred of whom were armed with breech-loading rifles the unfortunate hamlets which refused their support were mercilessly pillaged and burnt and their inhabitants massacred as an example to other recalcitrants it must however be stated in justice to the rebel chief that he protected those who were faithful to his rule for on several occasions in eighteen eighty nine ninety he defeated detachments of native militia sent by the resident in baknin to collect taxes from the peasants during this period the attention of the french authorities was so actively engrossed by the movements of the chinese bands in the provinces of lang son and Bang on the song koi and black rivers that action in the Yen was put off until the end of eighteen ninety as a natural result of this policy of tergiversation the power and prestige of de nam increased considerably and so great was his confidence in the ultimate success of the insurrection that he established a strong fortified position at kaotouang in which he placed a garrison under the orders of de tam the most trusted and capable of his lieutenants this subordinate not only administered the surrounding country and levied toll in the name of his chief but by night he often crossed the song Twang and raided the rich villages along fulang tuang the inhabitants of which had been living in security and growing rich thanks to the close proximity of the french troops garrisoned in that town it was frequently the lot of the unhappy resident to watch through the night from his veranda the burning houses of these unfortunates patrols would be sent out but their departure was at once signalled and they would arrive on the scene only to find that the raiders had decamped with their spoil and sometimes these detachments, being at a disadvantage in the gathering darkness, would be ambuscated by the rearguard of the enemy and suffer severe loss. At last something had to be done, and a column under General Godin was sent against the rebel position at Cao Tuong. It was with some difficulty that the fort was located, owing to its being concealed in the midst of a dense thicket. Part of the expedition was surprised and suffered losses. Eventually, thanks to the fire of half a battery of mountain guns, the position was evacuated, and the enemy, after breaking up into small groups, succeeded in escaping northwards. No dead or wounded Tonkinese were found in the fort, but its solid construction and the judicious selection of its site was cause for great surprise to all the officers present there can be no doubt that in this and also during the subsequent operations against houtouet the french considerably underrated the strength and military capabilities of the enemy it would not however be wise for us to criticize too severely since we have committed similar errors in most of our own colonial expeditions a fine village close to the enemy's fort was found to be abandoned and was burned with this the operations terminated which fact demonstrates the ignorance of the french officials concerning the extent of the rising for they now concluded somewhat hastily that the centre of resistance had been destroyed in reality the garrison of a small outpost only had been dislodged and the enemy returned to the position as soon as the troops had gone they did not however remain there long for shortly afterwards the authorities constructed a strong fortification on the crest of a hill which overlooked all the surrounding country and this was occupied by a detachment of native militia under the orders of a french officer elated with the knowledge that they had slain several french and native soldiers the rebels most probably concluded that the victory had been theirs Certain it is that for long afterwards every minstrel in the province sang of the prowess exhibited by Tam's troops on that day. Before General Godin's column was broken up, the civil authorities decided on one wise measure. To ensure the tranquillity of the region after the taking of Kauthuang, a position was chosen at Na Nam about eight miles further north, and a fort was built there a company of the foreign legion one of native infantry with a mountain gun and a few artillerymen were left behind to construct the fort encouraged no doubt by the non-discovery of their strong positions in the north and by the trifling loss they had sustained the rebels became more venturesome than ever Placards, declaring war on the French government and threatening with death all natives who remained loyal to the foreigners, were posted up in the roads, byways, and marketplaces of the provinces. Rich villages, situated but a mile or so from the garrison towns of Dapkau, Bac Ninh, and Foilang Tuong, were pillaged, burnt, and many of the inhabitants slaughtered. Almost each night would see the troops under arms, and the sky reddened with a conflagration. The civil authorities were supposed to supply intelligence to the military, and they had secret service funds at their disposal to pay for the work, but there was never any forthcoming. The enemy, however, were better served, and not an ambuscade could be planned or a patrol sent out, but they were immediately informed of the fact towards the end of november a perfect state of anarchy a veritable reign of terror existed throughout the province and as a last resort the yente was placed under martial law and the administration of the district entrusted to the brigadier-general in command of the second brigade at back To such as are cognizant with the French method of recruiting the personnel of that country's colonial civil service, there is little cause for surprise at the maladministration of Tonkin at this period of its history. To have a parent in the ministry, a relation who was a deputy, or an electioneering agent, or to possess a friend with political influence, these were the surest means of obtaining a soft, well-paid billet under the tropics few if any of the candidates nominated knew anything about the country its people their customs or language prior to their arrival in it and even today, when some apology for a competitive examination has become necessary though this is not always the case not one in fifty of france's public servants in indochina possess a sound knowledge of the vernacular very shortly after matters had been taken in hand by the military authorities things began to take a turn for the better thanks to sterner measures and a better organized system of espionage when information had been obtained disclosing the existence of a strong main position at hutay a reconnaissance was sent out from nanam on the ninth december to locate the route this action led to a vague knowledge of the whereabouts of the enemy being obtained and a small column under major fane marched against the rebels on the eleventh after a good deal of skirmishing and groping about in the dense forest the detachment which had blundered blindly on the fortifications was very severely handled and forced to retreat a new expedition a thousand strong under the command of lieutenant-colonel winklemeyer attacked the rebels on the twenty second december an attempt was made to assault the stronghold Owing to the fact that the enemy's works were only visible at a distance of a few yards, and also to the impracticability of clearing a road for the guns through the trees and undergrowth, it was found impossible to aid the attack by a preparatory action by the artillery. For a similar reason, the assaulting party were obliged to move in Indian file along two narrow paths, exposed all the time to a severe crossfire under such conditions the impetus so necessary to success was impossible progress was slow and casualties numerous the foliage was so dense that the few rays of the sun which pierced through it produced an effect of dim twilight through this semi-obscurity which was intensified by the clouds of powder smoke which clung to the damp vegetation could be distinguished the countless red flashes from the enemy's rifles the continuous rattle of the musketry the crashing clatter of the branches and twigs severed by the hail of lead the insulting yells of the rebels the monotonous boom of their war-drum the complaints of the wounded and dying produced a sensation of fearsome nightmare the european troops behaved splendidly Those who escaped the zone of fire on the paths tried their best to break through the first bamboo fence, but were shot down almost as soon as they reached it. At one point a hole was made in the enclosure, and two legionaries got through. They made a rush for the second palisade, but before they could reach it one of them fell, and his thigh was pierced by a pointed stake fortunately his comrades succeeded in carrying him back the way they had come and escaped himself without a scratch unable to stand the continued strain a company of native troops tonquenois, retreated in disorder some of them actually threw away their arms and with turbans gone their long hair falling in confusion over their faces and shoulders fled shrieking and panic-stricken seeing that success was not possible under the circumstances the commander of the expedition wisely ordered a retreat the engagement had lasted barely an hour and over a hundred of the rank and file had been killed or wounded when the troops retired a good many of the slain together with their arms and ammunition fell into the hands of the rebels the column withdrew to Nanam, and reinforcements of men guns, and mortars were sent from Bakmin. Colonel Fry, who commanded the brigade, arrived and took over the direction of the operations, which lasted from the 30th of December to the 11th January, 1891. Trenches were opened, but progress was very slow. Eventually a position was reached about a hundred yards from the first palisade, from which a glimpse of the interior of the fort could be obtained a battery composed of two mountain guns and as many small mortars was established, and the shells thrown from them soon caused serious loss to the enemy, and set fire to one of the thatched roofs of the numerous buildings it contained. Most of these constructions were built of bamboo and plaster, so that the conflagration spread rapidly, and towards evening the interior of the citadel was a mass of flames the rebels displayed striking courage for they clung to the walls and fired incessant volleys at the guns until late into the night profiting by the darkness they then evacuated the fort after burying their dead and retired with their wounded to positions a few miles further north these positions were stronger than at ho and consisted of a big entrenched village the approaches being covered by several forts and numerous rifle-pits the importance of which was unknown to the french so well had the secret of their construction been guarded on the following morning an assaulting column found the position at hauteuil empty and the defences were partially destroyed by dynamite after a few reconnoitring parties had been sent out and no traces of the enemy discovered the civil authorities concluded that the rebellion had been squashed and the governor gave orders for the column to be broken up a most excellent and detailed account of the operations against houtouet is to be found in *Pirates et Rebelles au tonquin by general frey published in eighteen ninety two by messrs hachette at c paris the maps of the region and sketches of the position are reproduced from that work by the kind permission of the author and publishers however to ensure tranquillity it was decided to maintain the garrison and strengthen the position at na nam situate about three miles southwest of outwey on a small elevation dominating to the south east and west the plain which extends towards the song Kao, and Songtois, rivers, and northwards of which is the mass of forest-covered hills already described. The garrison consisted of a company of the legion, one of native infantry, and a mountain gun. The construction of the position went on very slowly, for the military authorities were able to obtain but few coolies, and the greater part of the labor had to be performed by troops who were continually harassed by night attacks for the rebels, encouraged, no doubt, by the failure of the French to discover their new stronghold, were soon as active as before. Fortunately, the garrison experienced small loss, for the enemy contented themselves by firing into the place at night from a distance of about three hundred yards. The strain on the men was very great, however, as three or four nights a week they were under arms in expectation of an attempt to rush the position this was the state of affairs when our detachment arrived at nanam on the evening of the twenty fourth april our arrival at the fort caused some little excitement and numerous were the questions asked us concerning friends in algeria we were at once distributed over the company and i found myself placed in the second squad of the first section which was lodged in a small pagoda situated about ten yards inside the fort gate and almost facing it this building was in very good condition and faced the south a vacant bed was given me the former occupant of which having been rather severely wounded in a skirmish about a fortnight previously was in the hospital at fulang Duang. i say bed but in reality it was an apology for the comfortable cots used in algeria the trestles were of wood and placed upon these was a plank about two feet broad a regulation blanket folded in two served as a mattress a good meal was awaiting us and after partaking of it i arranged my kit and in a quiet spot with the help of a comrade washed down with a bucket full of water our long tramp and the heat had made us comfortably tired so we turned in early and were soon sound asleep notwithstanding the restricted dimensions of our couches our slumbers were undisturbed and the night passed without incident on the morrow the men who had composed our relief detachment were paraded for inspection by our company commander captain plessier he addressed us with a few words of welcome adding some sensible advice concerning the great dangers which existed from sunstroke fever and the abuse of alcoholic liquors and the best way to avoid them after that he questioned us individually concerning our previous knowledge of building and engineering before he interrogated a man the sergeant-major who stood near him reading from a list he held would inform our commander of the name and nationality of each in turn to my surprise he addressed me in very good english saying what was your profession before you enlisted i had not yet adopted one sir i answered Hmm, you evidently possess a good education and we are in want of intelligent work then turning to the non-commissioned officer behind him he continued in french sergeant-major make a note of it this man is to be put on the brick-making gang in his spare time as he passed on to the next private he threw a quick glance at me in which i read a kindly sense of the humour of the situation to another who told him he was formerly an artist he said excellent excellent the very man i want my hut and the new kitchen will be finished tomorrow, so you can set about whitewashing at once this officer was a man of medium height about thirty-five years of age he was dark and wore a small mustache he was well built very active and seemed to be about at all hours of the day and night though a strict disciplinarian he was extremely just and never inflicted a punishment unless it was merited owing to this and also to his cool courage under fire his men were devoted to him and would have followed him anywhere the morning was given to us so as to permit of our settling down in our new quarters that afternoon i was initiated into the rudiments of brick-making The clay pit and yard were at the bottom of the western slope of our position, on the top of which was the rejouis, or citadel, of our little fort. Eight legionaries were employed at modeling the bricks and stacking them in the kiln. I was one of the gang, and ten native tirailleurs brought water from the well, chopped up the rice straw, and brought in wood for the fire. A piquet of ten men and a corporal on the watch for snipers protected us. We stopped work at five p.m. and went up to the fort to take our evening meal, after which I hurried round our positions to take things in and see all I could before the sun disappeared with that swiftness so startling to the newcomer in the east. In this part of the world there is no twilight. Again we were favored with a quiet night at five o'clock the next morning just before the bugle sounded the revai a sergeant-major came into our abode and gave us the orders for the day my section and another from the native regiment were to start on a morning reconnaissance at six o'clock under the orders of our captain the remainder of the garrison was to continue work at the fortifications and buildings in construction i soon learnt that this was the daily routine each unit taking alternate turns at reconnoitering or building. A quarter before the hour indicated the section was lined up outside our pagoda, facing the south gate of the fort. We were in our khaki kit of cotton drill, and carried our rifles, side-arms, a hundred and twenty rounds of ammunition, water bottles filled with very weak coffee, and a sort of heavy-bladed half-chopper, half-knife which was in the wooden sheet suspended from the belt on the right side this tool which is a cross between a gurko kukuri and a manila bolo is about eighteen inches long and has a blade which is broader and heavier at the end than at the shaft it is used to cut away the creepers bamboos and undergrowth although at a pinch it makes a formidable weapon a few minutes later the detachment of native troops who were to take part in the expedition came from their quarters and formed up behind us their uniform which was of similar texture and shade to ours consisted of a vest short trousers and puttees of the same pattern as those worn by the moong tribes the men were unshod and as a head-dress wore a round flat hat made of bamboo which is known as the thakalo this has a diameter of about eight inches is painted with red lacquer and has a small brass spike in the center. In shape, it somewhat resembles an inverted soup plate. This hat is placed on the top of the chignon turban worn by the Tonkinese and secured to it by red cotton streamers. On occasion, like the present one, the headdress was covered by a khaki coffre which not only hid the saccolo, but also fell over the neck of each soldier at the back as a protection from the sun. They were armed with a cavalry musket and bayonet. This weapon was of the same model and caliber as the one we were then using, but it was shorter and lighter. In addition to the native noncoms in these regiments, each section possessed two French sergeants. These of course wore a uniform very much the same as ours. As I stood in the ranks, curiously watching through the trellis-like palisade the red ball of the tropical sun as it rose swiftly above the horizon and lit up the plain before me with colors so brilliant that their glare seemed to burn the eyeball, I overheard the following remarks made by two comrades in proximity to me. Himmel, o Sidi Mahomet, the sun, promises well today. We shall lose some fat before we get back, Bower." fat i've none to lose was the reply i found the last of mine in my boots yesterday when we got back from Yinle, a native village about five miles south that load of bamboo did it i shall sweat my flesh away now pauvre legion have you got a cibiche cigarette that load of bamboo said the first speaker as he handed his chum his pouch do you think I carry back the boutongs, a native headman? Feather mattress? Shafskov an ironwood pagoda beam, my boy. eighty kilos if it weighed a gram. I heard the capitan captain say this would make splendid doorposts, but it's too heavy. So I tried it. Suck a gnome, it was a blow. When we got here I was nearly dead. Caput. Sweat why when i went to the kitchen to get a drink of tea schmidt stared at me and asked if it had been raining doomer curl the cartridges in my pouch were quite wet i believe the powder in them must be damp too i joined in the laugh at this sally and asked do you know which way we shall go this morning bauer no i don't he replied and neither does anyone else the old man mm-hmm. le Vieux, arranges such matters with himself as he takes his coffee in the morning. All I do know is that if we go south, east, or west, we shall each bring back a load of bamboo. My God, it does take a lot to build this place. If we go north, we shall have some fun, and some one will probably get hurt. No such luck, said the corporal on my right. There will be no vacancies in the cadre to-day.' As he spoke, our captain came walking down from the Redouille, and a few paces behind him one of the buglers leading his mount, a small white native pony, not much bigger than a Shetland, but as beautifully formed as an Arab. Our commander carried no arms, a pair of field-glasses slung over his shoulder, and a small Malacca cane constituted all his impediments. He glanced at the detachment, and then said to our lieutenant, Monsieur Meyer, the reconnaissance will proceed in the direction of Yen Le. I heard a suppressed groan from the men near me. "'The Tirailleurs will supply the vanguard.' At the word of command, one of the native infantrymen left the ranks and went out of the gate at a jog-trot. Once outside, he brought down his rifle from the shoulder, slipped in a cartridge, closed the breech-bolt, and carried his arm at the slope this man was what is known as the point of the column when he had proceeded about forty yards the cover point composed of a corporal and four men followed and behind these at an equal distance came the vanguard which in this case consisted of half a section under the orders of a sergeant when another interval of forty yards had been established the remainder of the column proceeded with the exception of a small rear-guard of ten men and a corporal who followed about a hundred yards behind us as we went through the gate bower said to me we can be thankful the demoiselles he meant the native troops are in front today. we shan't have to stretch our skittles legs once outside the fort we slung our rifles and marched at ease our road was on a narrow embankment which wound snake-like over the rice fields and we could only proceed in indian file the country here was very much like that of the delta which i have already described a well-cultivated plain studded over with villages hidden in clumps of verdure and surrounded by tall graceful bamboos which bent and creaked and whose delicate foliage rustled under the slightest breeze the only difference was that here and there were small hills some covered with long grass others with a dense and luxuriant vegetation the pleasant aspect of which broke the monotony of the landscape many of the villages were occupied and from some of them as our little column passed by the notabilities would come out and make obeisance and offer refreshments to our commander they had accepted the protection of the french authorities and paid taxes into the treasury at foulanquoi but the mere fact that their village was not a mass of charred ruins was the best proof that they must also have been paying toll to denam and most probably supplying him with rice others of these hamlets openly gave proof of their hostility by barring the gates before we arrived An order would be given, and a few men would make a rush for the entrance, pull back the heavy beams placed one above the other, the ends of which fitted in slots cut in two massive posts, and break in the ironwood doors beyond. No one was found in the place, all the inhabitants having escaped through some exit at the back of the village, generally leading into a dense jungle, where they hid with all the cattle they had time to drive before them. The defense of these hamlets are much stronger and more elaborate than those of the Delta Provinces. A double and sometimes triple embankment and bamboo hedge surrounds them. Between the first two of these are numerous deep ponds of stagnant water. Twisting narrow lanes just large enough to allow of the passage of the tame buffalo, divide up the interior and make of each thick clay-walled house a veritable citadel leading up to each of the two or three doors which must be passed to gain an entrance are narrow passages through which only one man can go at a time and these can be raked from end to end by fire from well-placed loopholes i was greatly interested by what i saw that morning and by the really clever system of defence adopted for their houses by these asiatics IT IS CERTAIN THAT HAD THEY OFFERED US ANY SERIOUS RESISTANCE, WE WOULD HAVE SUFFERED SEVERE LOSS. THAT THEY DID NOT, I ATTRIBUTE TO THE FACT THAT THEY WERE FULLY COGNIZANT THAT IN SUCH A CASE A GUN COULD BE BROUGHT FROM NANAM, AGAINST WHICH THEIR FORTIFICATIONS WOULD HAVE STOOD BUT A POOR CHANCE. AS BAUER HAD PREDICTED, WE ENDED UP OUR MORNING BY BRINGING BACK FROM YEN A LOAD OF BAMBOO, This we cut from the hedge of that village, which was not inhabited, for it had been burnt about two months previously, because its occupants had fired upon a passing detachment of troops. The task of carrying our load back to Nanam was no light one, and much bad language was used by the way. We reached our position about midday. Had it been possible to obtain sufficient coolies, the troops would have been spared this labor however it did none of us any harm for we were well fed and drew a daily ration of a pint of good wine and a lot of rum so that we could stand a little extra work owing to the extreme heat unless there was urgent need of their services the troops were kept under cover each day from ten a m to two p m from then until near sunset work would be resumed on the buildings and fortifications On the 5th May, at 1 a.m., I had my first experience of a night attack. My squad had come off guard duty on the evening of the 4th, and we had turned in at 9, and were soon fast asleep. White duck pants and a soft linen shirt constituted our usual sleeping costume, each man placing the end of a sheet over his bare feet to protect them from the mosquitoes in the event of an alarm it was easy for the men to slip on their boots buckle on their belts seize their arms and hurry to their posts of which each was already cognizant a few seconds sufficed for our little garrison to be prepared to repel any attack on their position a small light screened from the outside burnt in each room and this prevented the confusion which complete obscurity would have created what it was exactly that awoke me it would be difficult to state instinctively i had sprung off my cot and was groping about for my boots which were on the other side of it after cursing myself for my stupidity i found and slipped them on satisfied at being shod once more a sense of weakness and inferiority dominates the white man caught barefooted i did not wait to lace them but buckled on my belt took down my rifle from its peg and hurried over to the opposite side of our pagoda to take up my place at the window between two other men but a few seconds had elapsed since my awakening and now as i stood with my head and shoulders above the opening the butt of my rifle pressed under the armpit the right hand gripping the stock with one finger on the trigger now only did i realize what had brought me from my slumbers Previously my awakening intelligence had been able to concentrate itself on one object only, that of arming myself and reaching my post as soon as possible. There was no moon, but the night was clear, the stars ablaze. A few yards in front of us I could see the dim outline of the palisade, and beyond it in the darkness a gray streak of road which disappeared into the night along a front of perhaps four hundred yards the sombre background was punctuated again and again at a distance of about a quarter of a mile by lightning-like red flashes rat tat tat these were winchesters boom-boom sniders or muzzle-loaders then rat-tat-tat again in quick continuous succession with a sharp whirr or a long drone the bullets fly overhead A swish and a crackle. Ah, that was lower, and has hit the palisade. Thud, thud, they come into our good wall. A corporal blows out the light. Wise man. A crack and a jingle of broken crockery. The tiles of our pagoda are getting it now. Flop, a leaden messenger has come through a window and flattened itself against the opposite wall. In our room all is silent each man stands with his finger on the trigger a corporal is behind each squad we are waiting for orders in the trenches on the crest of the slope behind us and in the brick buildings scattered over our position our comrades like us are expectant ready and confident the enemy's fire increases and we hear it break out on the left the flashes from their rifles come closer and closer some of them are now not more than a hundred yards away a good many bullets are finding their way into our building a tin pannikin with a hole drilled through it falls with a clatter from the shelf and an earthenware jar which contained cold tea is smashed we can hear the soft trickle of the liquid over the tiled floor we take all the cover we can as we peep out into the darkness no one has been hurt but it begins to be trying to the nerves a ball flicks the window ledge and fills our eyes and nostrils with brick dust. Schweine! exclaims my neighbor, rubbing his eyes. Silence, says the corporal, who stands just behind. I have a growing desire to say something to somebody and feel terribly lonely. Next, I swear mentally that after counting ten, I will open fire and stand all chances. I count ten then do nothing and keep on waiting it seems for hours the whole thing lasts about thirty minutes at last we hear footsteps coming down the hill and lieutenant meyer appears walking at a quick pace a bugler behind him he comes into our quarters and looks around in the obscurity to see that all are present just then some more of our tiles go to glory with a smash he laughs lightly and says Sash off mes enfants and a titter runs through the room then turning to a noncom schmidt go over to the guardhouse, a few paces away to our left and tell the corporal that when the bugle sounds he will open a fire of six cartridges from the loopholes you can remain there and join in then to us attention for independent firing at one hundred metres Every man present braces himself and jubilates. The bugler, at a sign from our officer, steps forward to the doorway and sounds the open fire. In a second we are all at it. Crash! Bang! Bang! The sentry at the gate also joins in, and we can see the flash and hear the report of his weapon as he fires from behind his shelter of sods. All my nervous impatience is gone, and I no longer growl at fate and speculate on my chances of being shot in the dark. I am hitting back now and feel joyful at it. Also I seem to possess two distinct individualities, one watching the other, and the one knows that the other will be pleased if I do not hurry, as I slip another cartridge into the breech and close the bolt with a snap. So I effect the operation in the regulation manner, though I am craving to rush through it with lightning speed, and would do so were not my invisible double watching me so attentively. My rifle is as light as a feather as I bring it up to the shoulder. Then I peep along the barrel and wait a second for a flash from the enemy. It is too dark to see the top sight, so when the flash comes, with a steady pull, I loose off at it. Now the bugle brays the cease-fire, and the rattling din ceases suddenly. Within our room all is still again, except for an occasional cough, for we are breathing powder smoke. The place is full of it, and it hangs around like a fog. The enemy's fire on our front is almost extinct. The little there is comes from a long way off, five hundred or six hundred yards perhaps, an occasional twinkle and a following pop and then it ceases altogether. On the right of our position they are still keeping it up, till we hear the quick successive crashes of two volleys fired by our comrades from the trenches, after which it dies away, and is soon finished. So ends the night alarm. Awaiting orders, we remained under arms until our captain came round, accompanied by Monsieur Joly, our surgeon, to inquire if there were any casualties on our lieutenant replying in the negative we heard our commanding officer laughingly inform him that the only patient for the doctor was the sergeant-major's dog which had been shot clean through the body strange to say this animal a liver-colored pointer recovered completely from its wound at about a quarter to two the dismissed was sounded and we returned to rest again for the next few weeks the work of building went on apace and by the end of may all the garrison was comfortably lodged and the defences completed the tirailleurs labored with us at this task and it was whilst watching them at work that i was struck by the diversity of uses to which these natives are capable of adapting the bamboo they use it for almost everything roof beams door posts window frames and rafters were obtained from it for building purposes and also beds tables chairs matting and blinds the whole of our position was surrounded by two barriers of bamboo and in the space between them about twenty feet thousands of small pointed stakes of the same wood boiled in castor oil to harden them were planted in the ground the native troops were undoubtedly cunning workmen and were of great assistance in the construction of the fort. They are, however, held in small respect by the legionaries, whose opinion of them as fighters is of the poorest. The majority of these troops, recruited in the Delta provinces, the population of which are good agriculturists but possess no military virtues, are of small value as a fighting unit the few companies formed of tos and muongs mountain tribes of the Tonkin, have however rendered great service to the army and their courage and morale is of the best unfortunately only about one-fifth of the total strength of each regiment is composed of these highlanders at the beginning of eighteen ninety one the colony possessed three regiments of tirailleurs Tonkinois. Each of these corps was composed of four battalions of one thousand men. In June 1895, a fourth regiment of three battalions was raised, and in 1902, a fifth of similar composition was added to the strength of the army in Tonkin. Each corps possesses a cadre of French officers and non-coms composed as follows a colonel and an adjutant major for each regiment a major to each battalion and a captain two lieutenants and twelve sergeants to each company there exists however a great defect in the organization of these native corps of important significance to those acquainted with the admirable system adopted for our indian army for not two per cent of the frenchmen who compose the cadres of the tirailleurs regiments can speak the vernacular the disadvantages consequent on this state of things are too evident to require explanation End of chapter three part two